This is SLAS Technology Podcast. I'm David Pector. We have Agata Blasiak and Theodore Key joining us on SLAS Technology Podcast. Both are in the N1 Institute for Health, also in the Institute for Digital Medicine at the National University of Singapore. Welcome to SLAS Technology Podcast. Hello. They are joining us to talk about their article, Curate AI, Optimizing Personalized Medicine with Artificial Intelligence. Tell us about Curate AI and how it fits into the wider area of personalized medicine and clinical applications of AI. Oh, sure thing, David. Um, So Curate AI is an indication agnostic mechanism independent AI small data platform uh, that we've been using. And it's been from the basis of using this kind of second order relationship that we've seen within biological systems. And we've been scaling it up from in vitro to in vivo and now ultimately in clinical. And we've had numerous clinical trials now, a few in the past and a few ongoing right now for immunosuppression to colonist management and even for oncology and now for infectious diseases also. And what we're seeing is it's very robust in the way that it is. And it's using really clinical data that is already being collected. So we're not asking for more data. We're not asking for new kinds of diagnostics. We're using with whatever is usually clinically implemented within center of care for data collection, uh, such as a biomarker that is already collected for some kind of oncological indication. If it's like uh, specifically, let's, let's talk about an example like prostate for prostate cancer, we were doing a prostate-specific antigen uh, and as the biomarker for the output, and we were seeing that it was well-correlated. We were able to really treat the patient, reduce the dose, and what it's doing was only using the patient's own data. Interesting. So what are some of the benefits that you see in the uh, clinic? Uh, the, the big difference and the, I think the big advantage of the platform is that it doesn't require big data. It really is using the individuals, you know, that particular patient um, information, clinical information to then work with that and come up with a profile based on the quadratic equation and be able to recommend the next dose. Yeah, so it's, it's there are a lot of benefits of the fact that we don't have to have a population uh, information, uh, especially as a you know, big challenge for um, AI and ML and big database approaches is the quality of the data, of course. And then if you think about the, you know, rare diseases and uh, indications where, you know, this big data will potentially never, never exist right. uh, in a form that, you know, we can interpolate from, from the population, the information, how to treat this particular individual. Okay. So the, barrier to entry isn't there. You don't have to have this pre-existing big data set to take a look at a specific application. You can go in with the data that is available. Um, and right. on, and does it, and what are the things that the impact on the patient, uh, is it reduced side effects? Is that the, um, would you say, is that the number one, uh, benefit? 
I think the number one benefit is we can go for efficacy. So at least within oncology, what we've seen is traditionally within resist criteria that they use or international guidelines that you, they use for dosing, most of it is based upon a concept called a, like maximum tolerated dosage uh, dosing. So using as much of the drug as the person can tolerate and then reducing it down as side effects occur. So we can work with those kinds of systems. I think it's because Doctors have a traditional paradigm. They're trained under a certain system. They're trained to also look and uh, interact with that kind of dosing paradigm. So we work with them and say, hey, if you have to reduce it, well, we can use this data, right? But now instead of you only dosing according to kind of these side um, adverse events or side effects, um, we can say, hey, we can actually now give you some kind of quantitative method for efficacy, which is normally never really traditionally considered within a dynamic timeline. And it's usually just followed up maybe about two years after for an overall survival. A lot of these clinical trials are designed that way. What we can do and we've, what we've even demonstrated with um, the most recent paper for oncology that we have for the prostate one was using the patient's own data, we were able to actually identify one of the drugs. And one of the drugs that they were using, Zen3694, was actually experimental. So it was still in a phase two trial. And they were just scaling it up. And so there is no literature, right? There was no big data. There was no literature. There's no population data. So then what, what do you do with that? Mm. Still using that patient's, only that patient's own data, we were able to find out, hey, so we're getting this kind of deviation from here, from what Curate AI had kind of recommended and predicted to be the PSA, uh, PSA value for the dose that we had recommended. Could we analyze this? Could we see if something's going on? And the mm. doctors at the time were just saying, dude, it's spiking you know, we have to go back, we have to go check. Now they might have be having resistance. And then, you know, we we just said, okay, look, the data is saying something, Curate AI is also giving a different recommendation. Let's just explore this and let's just see if there is a discrepancy from what was collected. So we actually went back, uh, we asked the patient, we also um, asked, you know, was there any procedures? Did you go anywhere else? They actually had gone out to his primary care. So he went to a primary care, this was, this data was not recorded, right? So the right. oncology team, the clinical trial team had no idea that another procedure was being done. And the person had taken doxycycline. And what was interesting was when we went back, doxycycline interacts with the other drug that he was being given. So he was being given Zen3694 and enzalutamide. And it was so interesting that we went back, doxycycline interacts with enzalutamide. And the way that we were doing it with Curate was finding this interaction space mm. towards an efficacy measure and so, you know, therefore, with the transitive property, you can say if it's interacting with the enzalutamide and the way that we're, we're curate is kind of identifying, calibrating this person's profiles with the enzalutamide to the Zen3694 to this biomarker, then obviously something's happening. So then we went back to the clinicians and said, hey, so we've identified this, you know, we're just trying to figure this out, too. But. Could we just for the next few weeks just monitor him, right? Like I know this is not standard of care, um, but this is something that we are strongly adamant about. And, you know, but this is ultimately a recommendation. They stuck with it and then it just went back down. So he had yeah. stopped taking doxycycline and it was crazy. So this was, this was paradigm changing. Right. Changing was using the patient's own data, we can identify what is uniquely interacting with that patient. Mm. Um, that, and you can yeah. also see based on this example how, important personalization is because right. it really is a series of so-called n of one cases right. uh, where you know we are all different and the treatment the therapy should be uh, tailored to to all of us differently and 
we see it in the type of profiles we get out of QADI when we plug in the, all the inputs and all the outputs. Uh, the, the quadratic surface might have a totally different shape for, for, you, for me or for Tio and for you. Uh, it's, it's actually crazy when, when we look at the data and we just you know, put next to each other uh, patients, you know, the, the, uh, the profiles of the patients and we see that the drugs are interacting in a different way uh, and they have to be given at different ratios to drive, you know, the most out of the, the combination uh, towards better clinical outcome. I see. I think another thing to note is um, that at least with Curate is we're not completely saying big data is not useful, right? Like we have to use literature. We have to use what has been done within standard of care. And those are based upon, you know, numerous clinical trials over time. And there's a reason why it's been standardized. And, but we can actually use big data eventually as we scale up to see these kinds of what we, like the doxycycline example with enzalutamide, that was a unique, what we called regimen change. Um, which would shift the surface over time. So what we're finding out is these kind of time-dependent and person, individual-specific kind of time-dependent and very dynamic surfaces, right? Intuitively, we understand this, where you today would be different than you tomorrow, would be different from you with a flu. Um, a patient who has just had a transplant surgery is obviously much more swollen, much more inflamed. Um, they're also in shock. And as their body and their physiology is catching up, they're going to respond differently over time. And we're able to see that, right? We're, we're able to accommodate this where with bigger data, you have to stratify, you have to clean it up. But at least what we can do is as we scale and as we get more and more cases, we can get these kind of stratified, even subpopulation specific kind of trends that we'd be seeing, okay, if you have these kind of correlations, most likely um, you may have a deviation or the sh your surface may shift, uh, your curated AI profile will shift over time uh, if you're given this other drug, right? Which is maybe common with that particular other drug yeah i see wow interesting stuff uh what does the technology look like in the hands of clinicians is this something they use on their own as an application or at this point is it still used in collaboration with the curate ai team uh so at the moment we we use it in a close collaboration with each other uh so we need to understand you know, as, as I mentioned, it's every case is different. So we need to have an access to all of that data. And uh, the way we work is that the medical team uh, let us know what were the inputs. So what were the drug doses and the outputs, uh, what were the, um, the surrogate measures, the outcome measures or the serial measurements for this particular feature that they would like to optimize. And it can be efficacy, but it can also be tolerability. We've been exploring that direction too. So as soon as we get that information, we can plug it into the system and send it back to them. But as you, as you are saying, we are developing it towards much more robust and much more stream, streamlined communication form between, uh, between the, the two teams. Uh, it might be in the form of an app, yes, but in the development of an app, uh, we, we are very conscious and, and aware of uh, different um, behavioral aspects of deploying that type of uh, technology into the hospital. We don't want to create another burden for the, for the clinician. We want to you know, understand how they approach 
uncertainty that comes with, uh, with new technology, with a new platform. So we are exploring that side. On the other hand, uh, the other thing we're looking into is the regulatory aspects. How will this data be you know, communicated with, like how is it, how is it gonna be stored in the app? How is it gonna be communicated with us if we are still playing an active role? As should the uh, recommendation be given as something for the for the doctor to consider as you know as an option, or is it should it override the doctor's decision? So there are a lot of um, a lot of things to look into, and then for the technical side, um, actually you know last year at the uh, SLAS uh, 2019, uh, Tia uh, got to give a talk. Uh, as um, on behalf of Dean Hall, that was uh, the, the talk was selected for the you know between the t- ten innovation uh, award finalists. Uh, so if you were there, no, no, you could have uh, yeah. you could have heard a little bit about the technical side of the of the app and also the regulatory side. It's I it's see. a very interesting space, but you know we are at the stage that we also have an understanding that there's no point of deploying something uh, in a rushed uh, rushed way. We, right, we right. want to create something that is useful and, again, not to just create another, you know, another box. Now, you're also applying this to combination therapies. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Um, so, I, actually, this is more towards, like, Ed, um, Ed Chow's technology, and he's the editor-in-chief for SLAS Tech uh, Technology. And it's, uh, so it's called QPOP quadratic phenotypic optimization platform, if we're able to use the patient's own specific sample, right, whether it's an ex vivo tumor sample or something else that's representative, either collected within the blood, um, could we expand it out? And then once it's expandable, using that patient's own sample, we're talking about screening up to 100 different drugs down into a three or four drug combination, which is normally clinically given. And that's around three or four days, which is for us very fast. I see. So running, using live samples kind of as the basis for bioassays um, over a matrix of possibilities, something like that. Right, exactly. So it's, yeah, the number of levels to the number of drugs. So you're talking about if you want to even look at three different concentrations for nine different drugs, you're talking about three to ninth or almost up to 20,000 minimum number of combinations, right? So a lot of traditional combinatorial designs when they're looking for it, a lot of it, if you look at it, is just one drug, one with another drug, and they've already known the synergy. So it's a lot easier for them. It's a lot safer for them. But with QPOP, because we almost give a wish list to the doctor going like, okay, what, what drug is crazy enough that you would want to try out, but you've never really done it, that has been maybe FDA approved, off-label use, or even just peripherally related? And you know, they name as many drugs as they can. Uh, we also do a literature search just seeing is there other related pathways that could potentially be interacting with this particular indication or disease. And then, yeah, we can go as, as wide as like a hundred drug assay. We can go down to about a 10 drug library also, and then we can be much more intimate. I think for, um, yeah. So this okay. one, it was recently shown with uh, multiple myeloma and it was mm-hmm. getting really good for tesimid, um, com- uh, resistant for bortezomib resistant multiple myeloma to find these new combinations. Oh, wow. So this is run with uh, micro well assays? Yeah, actually it uses yeah. those same pipette technology. Yeah, those automated pipette technologies that uh, 
we saw so much at the floor mm -hmm. for SLAS 2020. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. So there's a lot of future. This is kind of like the beginning of so many possibilities. Right. right. This, uh, technology. So that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there are so many questions just in this discussion that we've um, had here that, you know, you could, each one would be is an area of investigation. Right. Um, so uh, what's the research environment like at NUS? How do you describe it? You are you both new to it? You come from other places. Um, so I'm I'm a Los Angeles native, and I came out here with Dean after um, after doing a lot of research at UCLA, and we were continuing some of these projects, and we kind of ported over the technology curate AI uh, to NUS. And one of the great things about Singapore at the time was really within almost the first two weeks, we're meeting with the HSA, which is the FDA equivalent here. It's the Health Sciences Authority. And yeah, within the first two weeks, we're meeting with, um, was it the chair of the devices portion for um, the HSA? And they were already referring us to the Ministry of Health for also QPOP. Singapore for us was just dynamic. It was the intersection between the West and the East, right? You know, we're located ideally, we're near Taiwan, we're near China, um, who have different, way different stratified regulatory structures. And for us to bring over this technology, especially in this dynamic age of AI and all these new kind of digital medicine and digital health initiatives was just really exciting. And it was really an opportunity we couldn't pass up. Yeah. Yeah, I, f I think what's important to stress about NUS is, and about the university itself, that it's really promoting the science that is translational. They are trying to make it easier for us to, to work with clinicians and to, to deploy the technologies. Uh, there, you know, there is the N1 Institute for Health that, is, that focuses on biomedical engineering within this translational aspect. Then the, the newest institute, Wisdom Institute for Digital Medicine, uh, this, you know, it happened so fast uh, to get the department of the, the medical school, the support to, you know, to see the value in, in going this uh, digital route. The other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, that the, the students are from like very early on taught the, the design approach to, to things uh, in, in the biomedical engineering department at least. And, uh, you know, we get so many students coming over for uh, internships or as a part of their um, education that the, you know the requirements they they have to come over to their final year projects uh, in the more real world scenarios uh, if if you want to call them like that they're encouraged to to go out there and try if there are solutions that are coming up with uh, in their classes i think in the states it's kind of you know feast or famine but in singapore there's just so much funding opportunity and they really are put like the, when the government wants something whether it's you know personalized learning or any of these kind of new initiatives they really put their weight into it i mean so from from the research discovery there was a you know it's it takes let's say a year or two to actually change the policy uh, which is super fast so that's what happens in singapore um these things are you know they we feel like we actually are creating a value that is has an impact at least you know locally and we hope globally over time all right i want to thank dr agata blaziak and theodore key for joining us in discussing their article curate ai optimizing 
personalized medicine with artificial intelligence.